If you will, grab a copy of God's Word um, or a bulletin as we look at Matthew uh, chapter 1. I love preaching through Advent series. Uh, We usually go through the Christmas story from Matthew or Luke. Uh, I like Luke better because you don't have to deal with the genealogy, right? The text we're looking at today. Uh, This is a tough text to preach. However, what seems boring to us, right, the parts that we like to skim over at best, uh, this is super-duper important. There's a reason that Matthew puts it here. In fact, anytime you come to God's Word, you should know that there is a reason God put it there. There are no extraneous, there are no extra words in God's Word. And so if it's here... The problem is not with the text or whether we think it's boring or not. Rather, we need God's help to understand why did Jesus put it here. So, we're going to read it, uh, and then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll dive right in. Um, let's, Let's pray first and ask God to help us. Let's do that. Father, we thank you for your word, and we we rejoice in the gift that it is. And Father, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Uh, Help us to see the importance, the the vital importance, how our salvation would not be complete without this text. Guide us by your Spirit, we pray. Grant us unction and anointing us all. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hear now the word of God from Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, let's stop just a second. This is an outline for our entire text. This verse. Let me read it again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Introductions are important. 
Uh, introductions are vitally important. In fact, usually we um, make most of our judgments based on those initial introductions. If you meet somebody for the first time, first impressions really do make a big difference, don't they? Oftentimes people have to go to great lengths to perhaps change what you first thought about them when you first met them. And, and when, you write, when you read a book, what it says in the very introduction may determine whether you read the rest of the book or not, or will at least frame how you receive the rest of the book. So, so why did Matthew start with something that is super boring to us? This list of names. Uh, you might be able to pick out three, four, maybe five of these names that you've heard of before and give a brief outline of them, but, but most of them I would imagine you can't. Why in the world would he do this? Well, it's because originally... The book of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. It was written to a Jewish audience. It was written by God using a holy man named Matthew. It is his word, and it was originally written to a Jewish audience. Matthew is the most Jewish of the uh, Gospels. Uh, It goes to great extent to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises uh, and prophecies about what the Messiah would come to do. Genealogies may be important to you, uh, but I, and in fact, I know some of you really enjoy doing genealogical work, but it, it pales in comparison to the importance of genealogies uh, to the Hebrews. Do, do you remember, and we'll see this soon, when, uh, when Joseph takes his betrothed, his betrothed fiance who was pregnant, he took her somewhere in order to be registered in the census. It was the city of Bethlehem, right? Why? Because it was a city of David. So, so he knew that he was in the line of David. Not just the line of Judah, the tribe, but the actual family within Judah from which he came. It was important that he came from that line. And so we are given the bona fides, the bona fides, right? The, the, the resume of the Messiah to make sure that we know that all these prophecies, all these promises of the Old Testament leading up to the Messiah, that they really are fulfilled by Christ. All of these prophecies have been said that He would be the son of Abraham and that He would be the the son of David. And if we get to Jesus and He is born in a completely different tribe than Judah, then we would know He's not the Messiah. Lineage is important. And it's especially important here. In this text, we're going to see he's mentioned here twice, and then another is obvious from the rest of Scripture, that Jesus is the son of three people. Let me say three and a half. Mary, two, right? He is first the son of Abraham. He is second the son of David. The text says that he is born of Mary, so he's the son of Mary. But most importantly, who is he? He is the son of God. And so why in the world would Matthew go to a great extent to show us the importance of Jesus being the son first of Abraham and then the son of David? Well, let's, let's first deal with this first question. Why is it important that Jesus is the son of Abraham? We're told this in verse 1, that Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Abraham's older than David. And in verses 2 through 6, we're going to see uh, um, Matthew recount the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham up to the line of David, showing that his line goes all the way back, about 2,000 years before Jesus came, to the father, really, of 
of, of our faith, Abraham. Why is it important? Well, it's important because God had made promises to Abraham and to his offspring. Not just promises to them, but had given them a charge that they were to be blessed by God and to be a blessing to others. But before we get that, we, we need to discuss that there is a new name in our text. See, the Son of God, the Son of God would, would come into this world in order to be the son of Abraham, in order to be the son of David by human lineage. And he is given a name. What is the son of God? God the son, what is his name? His name is ultimately Yahweh, isn't it? He is God. But when he is born, he is given a name. And he is called Jesus. Jesus is an important name. Because it means something. He is given this name because it means God saves. So here is the Son of God who has entered into the world, the world in which had been in rebellion against Him, the world He created for His own glory and for our enjoyment, and then we rebelled against Him. He enters into this world, at, the Son of God does. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has always existed. And He comes in order to save us from our sins. You know, at Christmas time, we don't celebrate some coming of some nice guy or some teacher. We celebrate salvation coming into this world in the form of the God-man, Jesus. See, he is both 100% God and 100% man. Do you remember this divine math? He's not 50-50. He's not half God and half man. He's 100% both. Now, he achieved, God achieves this by the virgin birth. This is why the virgin birth is so important. He would receive from Mary a human nature. And God used the virgin birth for God the Son to come in, remaining divine, remaining God himself, and to take to himself a human nature. We're told how this happens over in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel answered her, Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. So whose son is Jesus? We can answer that in a lot of different ways, can't we? According to this text, he's the son of Abraham, he's the son of David, he's the son of Mary, but ultimately he came into this world, the Son of God, in order to fulfill the law, in order to do the things that the law could not do, in order to bring us salvation. Well, this physical lineage, this physical nature that he takes to himself, he inherits. He comes in the line of an important family. First, he comes in the line of Abraham. Why is that important? Well, it's because God had made promises to and through Abraham to bless the nations. It's fun that we've been studying the life of Abraham in our normal series. Because here we see the tie between what we've been studying and ultimately to the coming of the Messiah, the God-man Jesus, who will bring us life and salvation. You'll remember from our study of Abraham that God had called Abram, as he was first called, from a pagan background, outside of what would become the promised land, to pack up his family and to move to Canaan. And he gave him great promises. And what does Abram do? He responds in faith and is counted to him as righteous. He becomes a believer. He, he, is a, he fears God. He is saved. And so God, uh, God tells Abram 
what he's going to do through his family and for uh, Abram. Now, it, it could be said this is one of the most important texts in all of Scripture. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's this last phrase that's so important. And in you the families of all the earth shall be blessed. God had a a much bigger program in mind. He had a a far greater plan than just the salvation of an ethnic people, the Jews. He had in mind something much grander, and that was the salvation of Jew and Gentile alike. And this is what Abraham was supposed to do. He was supposed to take the blessing that he had received and bless others by calling them to faith in the Lord. But indeed, as we look at the history of the Old Testament, They couldn't even love God themselves. Ultimately, this was pointing us to the one who would come to fulfill these words, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you remember in our recent study of Acts how the early church, how Jews and Gentiles alike begin to respond in faith? And indeed, by the end of Acts, the church is overwhelmingly Gentile. That is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that through Christ... All the families, all the nations, all the people of the earth will be blessed. That now all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is um, there's one name by which man may be saved, right? And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So God had this plan to include the Gentiles into his people. He had called Abraham to be part of that. But ultimately this promise looked to his son, to his offspring, His name, Jesus. See, why is it important that Jesus is the son of Abraham? It's because while Abraham was involved with getting this process up, process started, the promises begun, ultimately the promises would come through his offspring. What was the problem, though? Do you remember? See, Abraham was told he was going to be the father of a great nation, of a great multitude. But Abraham wasn't a father of anybody. His lovely bride, Sarah, she was barren. And she was old. What would happen? Well, she would have a child when she was 90 years old. God's not stymied by the natural things, quote-unquote, is He? See, his, His plan was for something far greater than just the son of Isaac, this child of promise. He was ultimately going to achieve... The promised child, the promised one, the promised Messiah through this line. And so just a simple situation of being barren wasn't going to foil his plan. And so by a supernatural birth, Isaac is born, and it points us to another supernatural birth, doesn't it? Of a young virgin, betrothed, not married, having never known a man, would be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And through her would come the true offspring, the true son of Abraham, Jesus. There's one really, one other really important connection between Abraham and, uh, and Jesus. It's my favorite. 
You remember that in Genesis 15, we looked at this a couple months ago, I guess now, God enters into a covenant with Abraham and, to, and with his people, and there's this formal ceremony to make this happen. Do you, do you remember what they do? They, they take animals, and they cut them in half, right down the backbone. And God tells Abram to, to lay them over against each other. This was how treaties, how covenants were made in the Old Testament. The two parties would walk through these, these animals which had been torn asunder. Y'all, there was blood everywhere. And, and the imagery was that if you break your side of the covenant, you will be torn asunder just like these animals. And yet when it came time for Abraham and God to walk together through the animals, do you remember what God did? He put Abram to sleep. And God in the form of a flaming fire pot, Smoking a so flaming torch and a fl- uh, flaming torch and a smoking fire pot went through by himself. What does that tell us? That he was taking to himself not just the, the importance, not just the obligations, the responsibilities to fulfill the promises side, but also the curse side. So that when Abraham and his offspring violated this treaty, violated the covenant, which they and by the extension we, which we have done by disobedience to our God. Who would take the punishment? The true son of Abraham, Jesus. God saves. And where did this happen? On the cross. His body wasn't torn asunder like the the animals were. Not a bone was broken. That's an important prophecy fulfilled. Rather, he is crucified. He is Can't breathe. He ends up dying because he can't get any oxygen. How about that? But much worse, he takes on the cross the wrath of God. See, the physical punishment was but nothing compared to the spiritual anguish as our Savior was torn asunder as he paid the penalty for our sin. These are things that God had promised to Abraham. And coming one day, 2,000 years later, 2,000 years behind us, midway between us and Abraham, was the true son of Abraham who would fulfill these promises. So why is it important that Jesus came from the line of Abraham? Because God had made promises to Abraham, and they are fulfilled in Christ. But there's another Old Testament figure through whom Jesus comes, and his name is David. Why is it important that Jesus would be born in the line of David? was because God had promised to King David that he would have on the throne forever one of his descendants. Ultimately, this pointed to Jesus, to the Messiah, to the true Davidic king. You know, every four or eight years, depending on how elections go, we receive a new president in our country. Did you know anybody can run as long as they meet just very simple, basic qualifications? Must be a natural-born citizen of the U.S., a resident for 14 years, and 35 years of age or older. As long as those things are true of you and you have a billion dollars, you can run for the presidency. (laughs) But that wasn't the way it worked in Israel. See, the kingship was um, governed by uh, a covenant or a treaty. See, God had made promises to David and to his descendants. He establishes David's house his dynasty. And he says, none other will ever be king of Israel except 
the sons of David. We get this in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 16. God told David, in your house, not physical house, but your lineage, your, your, your dynasty, your dynasty and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And here it is, and your throne shall be established forever. What's the problem? Big problem. Big, big problem. See, if we look at the list of the kings that are mentioned here in verses 6 through 11, this is no longer just a lineage of who fathered who. By the way, father can refer to grandfather, and son can refer to grandson or great-grandson. That's very common in Hebrew uh, genealogy. So if, if you start going back through Old Testament history and say, but there was somebody in between, that, that's anticipated. That, that's okay. That's how Hebrew lineage works. But these are no longer fathers and grandfathers, just fathers and grandfathers. These are all kings. Now, some of these guys were good, especially uh, Uzziah and Josiah and Hezekiah, right? Manasseh, he was, he was just bad. He was awful. There's some really bad guys in this list. They, they were no longer blessings for the nations around them. They were called to do that too, a part of the Abrahamic covenant. They, they weren't even a blessing to their own people. In fact, they were driving people away from the worship of God. Some of them, like Manasseh, even set up idols in the temple complex. The one place you would have thought would have been safe to go and worship the Lord without any complication, without being driven to foreign gods. And so, what did God do? He's not, he was not glorified by this. This has been His plan all along, by the way. He sends forth the Babylonians after the Assyrians in the north, but the Babylonians for the southern kingdom of Judah, and He drives them into exile. And, and the worst thing that could ever be fathomed in that culture, in 586, the temple was destroyed. The streets of Jerusalem ran with blood. And never again in the Old Testament was there a true Davidic king on the throne. But what about your promises, God? Didn't you tell David? Did not you tell David that there would always be someone on his throne? It ultimately points us to Jesus. See, our hope cannot be in an earthly king. Our hope cannot be in just a king of flesh and blood. Even the good kings, they messed up. You remember Solomon, great king. And at the end of his life, all those concubines and wives drove him away from the Lord. See, we needed a better king. We needed a king who would not just bring us peace nationally, but a, a king who would bring us peace with God. And no merely human king could do this. And so... God's people anticipated a new kind of king. It's hinted at. Let me read to you Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. It's a great text. God says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now David's dead. He's been dead a long time. Then one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, David's dead. Who could this be talking about? My servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Well, if we fast forward to Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32, we have the answer. He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Who's this pointing to? Jesus. He is the true king and the line of David. And he would come not just to vanquish our physical foes, but to vanquish our greatest foe. That is our guilt of sin, its power over us, Satan himself. We have a great many foes. And Jesus would come as the true Davidic king and he would vanquish them. He would defeat the very power of the grave. That if we trust in him, that upon our death we are immediately ushered into where? Into the presence of the king. Into his throne room where he lives in heaven and where we will live forever. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen, they're going to pass away. The things that are unseen, they last forever. They are eternal. Well, there have long been seasons in which God's people needed rescuing. And that's what happens in our last section, 12 through 16. You have this period of this genealogy that takes you from uh, the Babylonian exile through the coming of Christ. For over 400 years, um, there was not a prophet. And God's people were under the dominion of one uh, empire from the next. To the next, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. What about the kingdom? Where is our king? And remember that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he is the son of David, he is the son of Mary. And ultimately, he's able to fill all these roles because he is the son of God. And, he, and when he comes in the line of Abraham, fulfilling the promise of a seed who would bring the blessing to the nations, who would come and fulfill the, the promises of God to take to himself the curses of the Abrahamic promise uh, covenant. Finally coming is Jesus who would set up his kingdom. This is why we read at the very beginning of his ministry, Matthew 3, 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom came to earth. Who was this king? It's, we're told in verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, while genealogies might be boring to us, hidden in them is the very message of salvation. Hidden in them is our hope in this life and in the next Jesus is God. Only God was and is able to fulfill the promises and even the conditions of the covenants made with Abraham and David. At Christmas time, we don't celebrate the coming of a good teacher into this world or one religious leader amongst many. We don't come to celebrate happy holidays. We don't celebrate family, friends, and eggnogs. Those are, those are nice too. What we come to do is celebrate God coming into this world, into the world in which it was rebellion against Him to bring salvation to His people who didn't deserve it. People like you and me. And if we turn from our sins, if we repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, if we turn from our sins and ask the King, 
to forgive us. He will. He has issued pardon for all those who trust in Him. He has paid for our transgressions. He has paid for our sins. Now we merely have to hold out our hand, the hand of faith, to receive the good news of salvation, that we can be at peace with the King. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you um, that our Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, has come, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Son of Mary, and ultimately, and most importantly, the Son of God. Increase our faith, O Lord. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen. We conclude our service with uh, hymn number 124. Let's stand and sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. of the Holy Spirit be with you all and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.